From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While the early signing period has taken many of the top prizes off the board, National Signing Day is still a big deal and a natural way to mark the arrival of February on the calendar. On today's show, we'll be joined by FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry to discuss how Billy Napier closed his first class, the players expected to fill the most urgent needs, men's basketball's battles from behind, and the worst team names in sports in the PAT. Then, we'll get to know basketball big man Jason Jatobo, including his journey across multiple continents to become a Gator. To get us underway, it's time for the Gator Roundtable presented by Pet Paradise. Are you the kind of fan that loves your team as much as your pet? Bring your pets to play where pet lovers and sports fans collide. Pet Paradise, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. We always talk football in the roundtable, even in the offseason, especially in early February, because that means National Signing Day. And that's where we're going to kick things off today with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Uh, Scott, let's dive in on this, okay? Billy Napier came in at a very weird time in, in the recruiting cycle. Florida was in a, a very bad place when he showed up. They improved significantly since he got the job and had a lot of makeup work to do. Ultimately, what do you think the story is when the dust settles from National Signing Day? I think with Billy Napier in this class, I mean, it, it's just the tip of the iceberg, Adam, uh, of what he wants to do, obviously, with the level that he wants to recruit at. But I think in specific terms of the situation that he inherited, you got to remember that, I mean, the Gators, they had dropped as far as like in the 60s on some of the national recruiting rankings. And, you know, you're going to see a class, I think, after all the dust has settled today, it's going to be between 20 and 30 and most of the uh, most of the class. I saw them as high as 20 today and as low as 35. And those will adjust, but that's going to be somewhere. They're going to be in that 20 to 35 range from the four major recruiting services and their national team rankings. Uh, to me, that's a big win just for what they were able to do. Billy Napier said there's been a lot of early mornings and a lot of late nights. And, uh, you know, his wife and kids have been out in Louisiana still. They're getting ready to finally settle and join him here in Gainesville later this week. Uh, so you can tell that's where his attention's been. That's where his staff's attention been attention has been and you know there's a lot of that goes into it that obviously on signing day sometimes it pays off sometimes it doesn't but I think they closed enough of the gap there just from where they were to where they're going to end up I mean to me if you're going to be fair-minded and reasonable I mean it it, to me it was a really good job by by him and his staff and in really a short window and I mean, those faces, Adam. The, the deck was stacked against them. I mean, they yeah. they came in here taking over a program that obviously ended up with a losing record and losing to UCF in the bowl game. They had a lot of ground to make up. They also had a whole different, I think, system uh, uh, approach than the previous staff had. 
and they had to uh, they had to redevelop their the recruiting board uh, that they they had at Louisiana and put it in place at Florida, and then revamped that uh, when they got the wheels turning here in Gainesville. So again, all said and done, is it going to be? I mean, if all things go right for Billy Napier at Florida, this will be his worst recruiting class during his tenure. And I'm sure that's what he wants it to be. But I think when you look at the big picture and understand all the dynamics that he faced uh, coming into this job, I think you have to say it was successful. And, and who knows? Some I don't know how these players are going to turn out. Some of them may turn out a lot better than we expect. Some of them may be a blip on the radar in the end. Uh, but I, I again, I think he did, he did a good job. And uh, to move up the rankings that much, I think you got to give a little tip of the cap there. Yeah, transitional classes are always difficult. And if you look at any coach who's coming in, uh, you're likely to see that. In terms of where Florida closed, who were some of the names that came in late that you think were most important, especially as it relates to key spots on the field they were looking to fill? Well, one guy stands out today is offensive lineman Jalen Farmer. Uh, Alabama got really interested in him in late. Uh, he took a visit up there, but... He, uh, he stayed firm with the Gators. He's a guy from Covington, Georgia, you know, 6'4", 334. Uh, that's always a position of need, as you know, and, and the Gators need some bodies there. Uh, they got Trevor Etienne. Um, we all know his brother, you know, the former Clemson star, Travis Etienne. So now we're going to get to see Trevor, uh, the younger brother here in Gainesville. So we'll see how that works out. Uh, they picked up a receiver latest signing on the day was Caleb Douglas, a, a kid out of Missouri City, Texas. Uh, Napier spoke highly of him. And, and uh, one guy that interests me, just from what Napier said, a tight end, Hayden Hanson. I like that name. Man. That's a good tight end. It is a good tight name. name. Hayden Hanson out of Weatherford, Texas, which is, I think, about an hour, hour and a half west of Dallas. Uh, but anyway, Napier brought this guy in for a private workout when he was at Louisiana. Uh, he said the kid blew him away uh, with what he could do. He's 6'6", 256 pounds, had about 40 catches as a senior, so he obviously can catch the ball. But being that big, you figure he can block too. He used to play quarterback, so he has to be a pretty good athlete. So, you know, those are some guys that, you know, today I think stood out for me. Again, a, you know, one, two, three, four, it looks like – Seven guys officially signed today, or eight. You add that with what they had in the early signing day, and then five transfers. And, you know, you're looking at about, what, 20, 21 guys or so, and, and there'll be some more at them. I mean, you know, the transfer portal is still loaded. They still have some positions of needs. There's still going to be some attrition uh, mm -hmm. after uh, after this semester and over the summer. Uh, so, it's we're sitting here talking about national signing day, but we also just have to look at it in a whole different light nowadays with, with the way the game's changed in the last couple of years. Right. I think you're going to see players added all throughout the year. Now the calendar year, I mean, used to, you know, national signing day, that's when you added players and you might get a transfer or two over the summer. And now it's just like a year round thing. And uh, we'll see how, how that evolves. Napier called it, We've been in the winter transfer portal, and now, of course, you had the early signing period, and now the national signing day. And now we're already – I don't know what you call this next phase, uh, <laughs> summer transfer portal. I don't know. Well, <laughs> but there's going to be some more players because I think he knows that where they are right now as a program, 
they need players. They need to upgrade some talent. They have some position needs that they need to address. And uh, there's still some questions with the with the roster. I mean, they signed another quarterback today, Max Brown, out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. I think he's a, a little different quarterback. Fits more like uh, Billy Napier's system at what we've seen at Louisiana, more of a versatile thrower and runner. That gives them six scholarship quarterbacks as of this moment on the roster. So, you know, does it stay at six? Seems highly doubtful. Uh, but we'll see how that plays out. You know, we're still in the, the early stage of this relationship with Billy Napier, right? So uh, the the media and kind of feeling out what he's about, the way that he approaches things, I think we're, we're still sort of learning and understanding that. Um, one thing that did come from his press conference, which was valuable, we learned what the game changer coordinator is. It's just another term for, for special teams. Um, beyond that, Scott, what stood out to you from his press conference and you know some of the things he had to say when asked questions that, listen, there are you want to have the number one class in the country and that answers a lot of questions. Um, Florida was not in that position, but what were you able to gather from Napier and sort of his worldview at the end of this first recruiting cycle? I think, you know, more than anything, Adam, he, he knows that he's got a lot of work to do and he knows that this class is probably not going to be indicative of future classes. I mean, you look at, you know, I think there's only six Florida players in this class. I mean, that's not, going to cut it long term you've got to do better in florida and he knows that he said you know he looks at it as, it was kind of just the byproduct of circumstances this year they have players that they had some connections with they happen to be spread all over the country uh, a lot of the florida players were locked in with other schools so you know that that's going to change but I, I think also you you realize that each time that he starts talking about this process how committed he is to his process mm-hmm. and the one they've developed over the years, you know, as a head coach at Louisiana and what he saw firsthand at Clemson and Alabama as assistant coach. I mean, he, he is very methodical in the way he's approaching this. And I think his staff is as well. And I mean, they're, they've got, we've talked about this on the podcast before. I mean, they came here with a plan and it takes time for plans to, to work and come to fruition. And, you know, it, it's just like, you know, it's funny when you're on social media during National Sign Day, whether it's going good and people are just, <laughs> yeah. we're winning the national championship, man. This is over. We're done. We're, we're winning it. And, and then if it goes bad, you know, like, why are we, why do we even try? Why don't we just hold <laughs> the program? And, you know, right now, Texas a and fans, they're like, man, we are a lot to win the title in 2022. Yeah. At Florida fans, you know, there are not really – I haven't seen that. I think most Florida fans, the reasonable ones, are pretty pleased with how it turned out. But there's always when a kid doesn't come that you hope to get, there's that negative reaction. That's just social media. It's not the real world so much. And I think I think Napier's just built to – I don't think that stuff phases him and his staff no. too much. They know what's, what's going on. And, you know, he talked a lot about the Gator Collective and that sponsorship this week. How much, you know, it's, it's all changing for everybody, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we're all watching this unfold, and I still don't know where this is going. I don't think Billy Napier has the, all the answers where it's going either. But what I do know, and what I take out the most of today, is Billy Napier has a plan, and he's going to execute that plan, and it's going to look the way he wants it to. The Florida football program is going to look the way he envisions in a year, two, three years. 
I don't know what that means, wins and losses, Adam. <laughs> but it's definitely going to be built the way he wants it to. Right. And I, I'm a believer that from what I've seen and from the way he's already tightened up some things, I think it is going to produce some some great results for the Gators. But, again, it's going to take some time. So, you know, you can't – today is today. Right. 2022 signing class, it's not much different than what I expected. It's actually a little better than I expected. So – that's where I am in the way I view all this. Yeah, no player signing is going to ensure that, that you win games in the regular season, uh, even those that are played on Fridays. Let's talk about the other <laughs> big story of the week. And you know, it, it's funny because at face value, Florida playing Florida State on a Friday night, it just doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. And it wouldn't be for anybody else because most teams do play games on other nights, whether it be, you know, for a long time, Florida State Miami played on Monday nights to open the season. And you've always had an SEC game on Thursday up until a few years ago. It was usually South Carolina, someone like that. Um, Florida was like this, this last holdout among SEC programs who only exclusively played regular season games on Saturdays. Uh, and now that is going to change and significant enough, I guess, to where I thought this was just in the, you know, the, the Gator Twitter echo chamber. This was a front page story on ESPN.com, uh, the day after this was announced. So, Explain why this is such a big deal historically. Well, I mean, I think from the Florida perspective, they haven't played a non-Saturday regular season game since 1992. I think it was a, a Thursday night game at Mississippi State. So, I mean, it's 30 years. So, anytime you have that length of time between having done something last and doing it again, it's going to become a story. I understand that part. It was like, you know, a few years ago when the Gators went out to – Texas to open yeah. against Michigan. It was a big story because haven't done that in a long time. And then you've you've had a, a little other things. One thing about Scott Strickland, since he's been here, he's tweaked some of those long-standing things and you know looked at it a little different way. That's why Florida's playing Utah to start this coming yeah, season and changing up not bowling green. Yeah, exactly. Now on the flip side, this isn't a Scott Strickland move. This is Correct. because of the ACC network. Uh, deal with Florida State. They slotted that game for Friday night. Florida State's had some Friday night games. I think they last played one in 2016. So it's really just a one-year deal as of now. You know, the 2023 game at Florida, still going to be on a Saturday from everything that's been said and written at this point. It's just one of those other little things that are changing in the game. I mean, uh, TV views this stuff as its product, its uh, inventory. Let's face it, Florida, Florida State on a Friday night, it's going to get good TV ratings. We yeah. know that. So it's kind of a win for the ACC network. Is it going to be a win for Florida State and filling Doe Campbell Stadium? Don't know. But I, I, I suspect that by the time that game rolls around, it's still going to be a big game. You know, Even this year, two programs that were – Obviously, underperforming. It was a great crowd. The swamp. It was sold out. Four to one. By the time that November, what is it? November twenty fifth rolls around. I think there'll still be a lot of anticipation for that game. Well, it's it's going to be a little different. But here's my take. Hey, I get the I get that weekend off, Adam. Now, <laughs> so you know, I go over and uh, I'm going to cover the game on a Friday night and come back at probably middle of the morning to Gainesville and maybe watch some football like you on Saturday. So. If they do it again in the future, I won't get upset then. But I understand, though, from a 
fans' perspective, that game has always been a difficult one right after Thanksgiving, maybe to get to Tallahassee or to Gainesville. Uh, so now you got to speed up and do it on a Friday instead of Thursday. So uh, I, I do understand those that side of the, the argument. We spent the last 10 to 15 minutes talking about a sport that is out of season. Let's get back to one that is very much in season and had a very important week. And that's, of course, the Gator men's basketball team. And Chris, this was really something of a a gut check week. And we're at the point now where it's into February and pretty much every game has this outlook of, okay, where are you on the bubble? Are you in? Are you out? And right now, Florida, very clearly, according to Joe Lenardi, is right on the edge of being an NCAA tournament team. Both of these games this week, Oklahoma State and Missouri, were going to be critically important. And they were both battles that Florida found ways to win. Yeah, and I can say that in some critical ways also, Adam, that they were very similar in that in both circumstances, Florida had to, you know, come back from a substantial uh, deficit. The Oklahoma State game uh, was one they trailed by 16, I think 13 early in the second half, and came back and won. And they did it with uh, a cast of characters that uh, that we, we weren't used to saying. Um, it's like halfway through the season. I still can't say Toon Thatch Gatkek's uh, name correctly, <laughs> I don't think. And I apologize to him right now. Everyone just calls him Toon. But I mean, he was, I mean, he, he was one, he was a difference maker in the comeback win over Oklahoma State, as was Niles Lane, a guy who hadn't played in a conference game, uh, much or hadn't played since Stony Brook. I know that Oklahoma State won a conference, but he hadn't played one SEC game. And Eli Kennedy, who they just threw out there for the first five minutes, those three guys started the second half and it was a, and they, they, they sparked the team by giving them energy that was sorely missing in a first half that was just absent of offense and absent of defense, absent of energy, absence of anything positive to say, character, hell. I mean, Mike White called his team soft at halftime, and there isn't an athlete on this planet that wants to hear that from his coach. And they answered the bell, so credit to them. Now, fast forward to Wednesday. Actually, fast forward to Tuesday instead. Uh, Florida's in the middle of practice and finds out that uh, after some back and forth, the league has decided because of this blizzard that is about to whack uh, the Midwest, they want to they want to still try to get this basketball game in uh, at Missouri, and they're going to play it at two o'clock Central Time instead of eight o'clock Central Time. So Florida had to cut practice early, get to the plane, get here. Um, they lose six hours preparation, and, and people say, "Oh, six hours? Who cares?" No, no, it doesn't work that way in sports, especially when you're traveling and going into a snowstorm. Uh, Tuesday night, uh, it, it was a wicked ice storm that turned into a foot of snow. Um, and the game is the next day. Florida actually comes out in Missouri. They, they come out pretty well. Myron Jones, who obviously we've talked about, has really struggled with his three-point shot uh, this season. Um, he hits five in the first half. Uh, hits his first five, in fact. Um, Florida has all this thing going for eight first-half three-pointers. Uh, they're shooting almost 50%, and yet they only are up by two points at the half, at halftime because they've turned the ball over nine times for 15 points. So. Um, Really slow to get things going in the second half. Uh, Missouri gets on a run. It is a, a nine-point Missouri lead with uh, it's at, at the under at the under eight-minute timeout when Florida just decides to start doing something different. And basically, it was they decided, look, the way the game is being called, they're in the bonus already. Uh, start driving the ball because Missouri was fouling a lot, and they start getting the calls. They start getting to the free throw line. 
And how about 17 of 17 from the free throw line over the last uh, seven minutes, 39 seconds, wow. including 10 for 10 by Tyree Appleby. So uh, including his two with 7.9 seconds left and an excellent defensive stand with a block shot with two seconds left by Toon Gatkek uh, <laughs> to preserve this, this win on the road. So uh, two straight wins for Florida. They broke a two-game losing streak in the SEC. And you mentioned er- earlier that – there are only so many left and yes, they are on the bubble and they've played some really hard basketball teams. All right. To date. Uh, and they've lost to almost all of them with the exception of, of beating Ohio state earlier in the season. I believe the quadrant one record is now one in five. They're going to have more quadrant one opportunities uh, to go. You know, they got to play Auburn again. They'll play Kentucky twice. Um, they'll have Texas A&M on the road. Those will be, uh, chances to win games. Those are going to be really, really hard games to win. But in the interim, control what you could control. Beat Oklahoma State at home, did it. Uh, especially coming off um, losing those games last last week, uh, mm-hmm. which I didn't get to talk to you guys about last week. Horrific old Miss performance um, in that rescheduled game that was supposed to be the opener last week where they had to play on a short turnaround. Then they played a really tough game at Tennessee and ended up losing by seven points there. Well, now they've won two. Now, come Saturday, they get Ole Miss at home for a little bit of a rematch. Ole Miss is playing very well. They've won, I think, three of the last four, and they just beat LSU on the road, number 25 LSU, a team that already has won in Gainesville. So there are no givens with this team. I say anybody who asks, the Gators lost to Texas Southern. They can lose to anybody. They can certainly lose to anybody in the conference. But their next two games are against Ole Miss and, and, and against Georgia. Again, you can't take Georgia for granted because they won a big game last week. So uh, uh, step back, appreciate what they've done this game. Really nice win here in Missouri, regardless of the circumstances. But a uh, uh, great, great game, great performance by Tyree Appleby to go 10 for 10 from the free throw line and by the, his teammates to go 17 of 17 over the final seven minutes. That's some on the road. That's a, that's a really, really good, really clutch uh, uh, victory for this team. Moving on to our PAT, uh, we've talked a lot about change in, in today's show, especially as it, as it relates to football. Um, let's talk about a, a big, high-profile name change in the professional ranks of the NFL, uh, and that is the long-awaited rebranding of the erstwhile Washington football team, who somehow, despite knowing for, I don't know, decades they were going to have to change the name, it took two years to get a new name, they finally settled on the Commanders this week, and I figure what better way to run the, to to float the test balloon than with lifelong Washington sports enthusiast Chris Harry. Um, is, is it a good name, number one? And if it's a bad name, what are other bad names that stand out to you? Well, it's a bad name. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, it's, we, can, can, can we start there, or do we do we even have to go anymore? That's a good I, place to start. Changing the name of the team may make some people feel better about some things, but uh, it's certainly not going to change the dynamics of, of an organization that is you know, one of the worst in sports and has been for under the ownership of Dan Snyder for the whole time. But um, that's not, I know that's not your question. Commanders, you know, one minute after you announce it, you know, given the landscape of politics in this country and how divisive everything, you know, they're, they're already the Washington commies. I mean, that's, that's, they're all, that's, that's what, that's what they're already called. And so, I mean, there's the, 
Yeah, I would have taken Red Wolves seemed kind of original, but apparently I read a story. There was some kind of there was some kind of back and forth. The, all the different logos came too close to this one uh, copyright thing with a red wolf. I don't know. Or what were the other ones? You know, they wanted to say presidents. You know, that would have opened it up to any kind of yeah crazy thing. I always thought Washington Monuments would have been good, but our motto was kind of cool, right? Our motto was I guess, I guess our motto, but to me, they should have just kept it the same. Washington Football Team. I mean, there's nothing else like that. And it had a, a little bit of a, was it bland? Okay. But it had a uniqueness to it that, that, you know, there was nothing to make fun of other than the <laughs> fact it was boring, kind of like the franchise in general, you know, thumbs down from the Washington sports fan. I, I don't, I don't even know what else to say. It sucks. Well, before, before we get Scott's take, are there any other names historically that have bothered you? Or are you just are you so caught up on this that that you can't even see no, no, outside no, no, no. of this this no, forest? No, I, I'm kind of I'm you know the Browns. I guess I was over Paul Brown, right? Yeah, and and it seems so generic with the with the helmet. The the Memphis Grizzlies. I don't think there's a grizzly bear in the state of Tennessee, right? No, they were in Vancouver. Remember that's no, oh, that's I know. one. No, that I know. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. And, yeah. and, and it's that was a great name. Yeah, the Vancouver Grizzlies was a great name. But I, uh, the Toronto Raptors, I, first of all, I had never even, I mean, I grew up, I studied dinosaurs as a kid. I, I didn't even know what the hell a raptor was. I never heard of a velociraptor until 1993 when the Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park came yeah, out. Yeah, Jurassic Park yeah, made so, it a thing. So, so to, like Steven Spielberg should like have some interest or something in, in, in the Toronto Raptors. But I don't, I don't know. There's nothing, there's no names that, that really bug me except the, the misplaced nicknames of teams that, do get up and move. Um, you know, there were the the Arizona Cardinals. Should they be the Cardinal? Are there Cardinals in Arizona? I don't know. It's a state bird of Virginia. Something tells me that a bird in this on the that's so prevalent on the on the East Coast. I bet they fly around in, in the cactuses out in the Arizona. Arizona cacti would be a better name for me for that's for, actually, for that franchise. I would that's think kind of a cool yeah. Name, yeah. And then they could move to Washington, and they would be make no sense, but they would still be a better <laughs> team than Washington Commanders. I, I do think we've identified something here I, I want to stick with. So, Scott, um, what names don't make sense to you, right? If we, we've determined there's names that are just not in the right place, what names no longer make sense in your mind? You know, I think I'd probably start with the Utah Jazz. I've always thought, I mean, obviously they were named the Jazz when the franchise was in New Orleans. And it makes right. perfect sense. But they go into Utah, which when I think of when I think of American cities, I can't think of a two more contrasting places I've been to than Salt Lake City, Utah, and New Orleans, Louisiana. <laughs> Tell us why, Scott. <laughs> There's a lot of different reasons, Adam. You don't have to. It's okay. Reasons. It's okay. But so when I think of Utah, I certainly don't think going after a game to some jazz club uh, and you know sipping on my favorite drink or beverage of choice. Uh, so that one is just always been kind of silly to me. Uh, some new names like the you know you have the Washington Commanders now, and you mm-hmm. have the Cleveland Guardians, which I'm not particularly a big fan of either new name. The Guardians one, you have to really dig deep into understanding why it's not very obvious at all. And even after you watch their video explaining the name, it still doesn't really add up. Yeah, just kind of a generic one. Yeah. I'm sure if you study the names of these teams, uh, some make perfect sense. Some don't make any sense at all. 
similar to jazz, how do we feel in general about non-plural names? Because that's hard as a writer, right? And a broadcaster, yeah. like the wild, the jazz, the thunder, the heat. Because then it's hard to refer to them plurally because they're not a thing. It's like a concept. Yeah, I, I dealt with that a lot when I covered the Tampa Bay Lightning. Because, right, right. You know, the Tampa Bay Lightning, which I actually think is a great name. It, it makes sense. It's perfect for that region because it's the lightning capital of the world. And uh, it makes perfect sense. I love their logo. But I remember at the paper... Since we were talking about the Lightning as a, and as a team, we would go with the style. You know, the Lightning won their sixth straight game. Okay, that would be our style. Right. But grammatically, you could argue that well, that's not really grammatically correct. It should be the Lightning won its sixth straight. Is game. it singular? Is it plural? Yeah. It's very well. The confusing. Tampa Bay Times or the St. Pete Times at the time they would go with the singular. Okay. I think those singular team names do complicate a little bit more for a writer. I don't think fans give a crap. No. Uh, they'll t- if they like the name, they like the name. I mean, I like uh, Miami Heat, Tampa Bay Lightning. I like them both. They make Utah sense. Jazz, Utah Jazz, sense. I do not like. Yeah. So that's one of the singular names. But a good name change. Always, oh, I never liked when I covered the Rays. They were called the Devil Rays. So I never liked the Devil Rays name. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually liked when they took double off and just made it the raise well one name we know everybody likes to listen to this podcast the gators uh and the gators are going to stay that way and these guys will keep writing about him over at floridagators.com also check them out on twitter at gators scott at gators chris uh gentlemen thank you so much we'll talk to you next week thank you adam one of the reasons we love sports is the unpredictability baked into every aspect of the game You never know who is going to go off, who may falter, or who will ultimately win. True to form, we had no idea when we spoke to Jason Jatobo last week that he would suffer a season-ending injury the next day. But unfortunately, that's the bad you have to accept with the good. Though the junior center won't be on the court the remainder of the season, that doesn't change the power of his origin story, which follows a path you've likely never heard before. Well, I'm originally from Nigeria. I have three brothers and one sister, and I stayed there. I stayed in Nigeria until I was like 12, and then I moved to Tennessee for high school, and that's when I started playing basketball. What led to that move? I mean, tell me about the, the first 12 years in Nigeria and what life was like there. Uh, the first 12 years in Nigeria, it was mostly, I, I mostly played soccer, and I started watching a lot of basketball, and I, I, I fell in love with it, so I told my dad I want to play basketball. And he had a friend who went to school in uh, in Tennessee. So he told the coaches about me. So basically that was it. So I moved to Tennessee and with the intentions of playing basketball. Tell me about life in Nigeria. I think there's a lot of people here that don't have a real concept of what it's like in a lot of African countries. So mm-hmm. what what was it actually like relative to what people probably think it was? Uh, well, when I stayed in Nigeria, it was good. I mean, Obviously, looking back, it was, it's, it's different. But when I stayed there, I had a I had a fun time. I went to private school. I played around with friends in my neighborhood. Like it was it was good times. Uh, you mentioned a lot of brothers and sisters. Were sports a big part of your family overall, or was it not really part of the 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 fabric there? I feel like uh, it really wasn't. I mean, we played soccer, but that was that was mostly for fun. But ever since I started playing basketball, yeah, my my brothers and sisters then they take an interest in it. When, when you told your dad you really wanted to play basketball and, and you had that, that connection in Tennessee, 
I mean, that's that's a pretty big thing, right? That's not like, oh, I'm going to go down the street or go to a different school district. That's that's a life change. I mean, how did how did you prepare yourself for that kind of change? How difficult was that? Yeah, it was definitely a life. It was definitely a big decision and a life change. But they, I feel like they had enough trust in me because when I was in Nigeria, I was I was going to boarding school, so I was already away from the house. Okay. So they they had trust in me, and plus we had some other Nigerians going to the school I went to, so they knew I was going to be in good hands. Was that like a pipeline? I mean, at the time, there were a lot of people from Nigeria that were going to the, this school in Tennessee. Yeah, yeah, you could say it was definitely a couple, a few Nigerians huh. going there. What was what was the reason? I mean, was it just random? Like, what was the the reason for that? Most of the time, like the way they that they like that workout, like they have like a tournament in Nigeria, and then they have like American scouts that come in to like watch them play basketball and like recruit them to their high schools. Hmm. But I wasn't I wasn't part of that. I didn't know nothing about that until I got to the school. I'm just thinking about what a change that would be. I mean, everything, especially when it comes to the culture. What were the biggest challenges of making that transition from Nigeria to Chattanooga? It was a challenge, but I was really ready for it because before before I moved to Chattanooga for high school, I was already coming to like I, I lived in Miami for a little bit. Okay. Like so I was already coming to the States, like for the summer and stuff. So I was I was really I was ready for it already. You said you didn't start playing till you were twelve, is that right? Yeah, I didn't stop playing until my eighth grade year. Wow. Yeah. Getting such a late start playing, not playing basketball till eighth grade. I mean, how did you develop? I mean, was it was it accelerated? Because that's that's a pretty pretty short timeline relative to most other guys. Yeah, it was it was tough for sure. It was definitely tough because I was so far behind. I was I was like six six. I was <laughs> overweight. So it was it was tough for me. But I met I met a former NBA player, uh Dickie Simpkins. He played with the Chicago Bulls when Jordan was there. Hmm. So he definitely helped me a lot with my game. Uh, he took, he invested in me. So he spent a lot of time with me, his work, and I kept on growing. So it all worked out. I played for his AAU team, uh, okay. NIP. So he, he spent a lot of like hands-on time with me. You know, when you're starting from scratch at that point, I, I'd like to think most people, Right. When they're really young, they pick up a ball and the first thing they probably do is they figure out how to shoot and then other parts of your game come around. When you're starting from zero, right, how did you develop and what what pieces did you implement? What order did that go in? Like, how do you build that skill set when you're already at that age? Yeah, it's just uh, it's a good question. You basically just got to start from the fundamentals like you were a little kid just learning. So I started off with just finishing and just catching the ball. I just that's what I worked on for the for a lot for a long time. I just did mic and drills. I just like did like dump off drills. I caught the ball and just like simple layups. That's basically how I started. And then from there I just kept adding to my game every every so often. Hmm. I assume most of your family is still in Nigeria, correct? Yeah, my parents are still in Nigeria, but my sister and my brother moved down here. Oh wow! Okay, so what's what's the communication like? How difficult is it to to maintain contact? How often are you able to talk? I mean, I don't even know. Is I'm sure that the time zones are, are all messed up. How does that work? Yeah, the biggest issue is just the time zone difference. Like, so when I get out of practice at like six, it's twelve a.m. down there, so they sleep. So that's the biggest issue. But besides that, we uh we we talk often. It's not that we keep, we keep the communication. Hmm. How often do you get to see him? Do you go there? Do they come here? Is it a combination? Um, they come here. They come here a lot. 
I imagine a lot of different people help mold you throughout your, your journey in multiple places. But uh, I'm curious, some of the biggest influences on your athletic career, who've, who've been the individuals that have made the, the biggest impact for you on your journey? Uh, like I said, Dickie Simpkins, he was, he's a big mentor to me to this day. Uh, my high school coach, Zach Farrell, my AU coach, Steve Cook, like they, they've been basically hands-on with me since I started playing basketball. I imagine if you're not starting to play until eighth grade, it, it probably took a while for for people to catch up, right? For coaches, for the recruiters and all that. What do you remember about recruiting and how that started for you? When did when did you start getting offers? Were there big offers early or did you have to sort of wait for those to come in? How did that play out? Well, basically, so when I started, it was basically little offers like low majors, low majors, mid majors. The highest like interest I had was like UTC. University of uh, Chattanooga because I because I lived there. Yeah, but it's crazy because my first uh, Division One offer was Florida. Yeah, so they they started recruiting me my tenth grade, my ninth grade summer going to my tenth grade. Uh, Coach uh, Mincy saw something in me that he saw I could be a good player in the future. So he basically kept the eye out for me since then. But besides Florida, I didn't really get no offers until my last year of uh, AAU. So I imagine that was. Uh... That probably held a lot of sway that, that the Gators believed in you so early on. Um, what were the other factors that made Florida the, the right place for you? Well, the main factor, not the main factor, but one of the biggest factors was during my junior year summer, I had I was blown up in the in the circuit. So I started picking up a lot of offers. Mm-hmm. And then I had broke my foot the second session. Then a lot of the recruitment slowed down. But Coach White, uh, he kept he kept in contact with me. He made sure I was good. Like, he didn't really care about my foot injury because he knew I was going to be able to bounce back for it. So he just kept in contact with me, and I knew that that was big for me. When you came into the program, who really took you under their wing? Who was showing you the ropes and making sure that, you know, you understood what it was going to take early on to, to play college basketball at this level? I would say it was it was mostly the players. So when I came in my freshman year, we had we had a lot of older players. We had Kerry Blackshear Jr. We had Andrew Nemar. So – I just I basically just watched what Kerry Blackshear did, like the way he approached the game, because he has been in college for a long time at the time. So everything he did, I worked out with him like during the off days. So that was that was pretty big. One interesting thing about this roster is there's actually multiple guys uh, that were either born in Africa or have those roots in in African countries. Is that been something that that's helped you and having that kind of community within even the small Gator basketball family? Um, I'll say this is something that we could talk, like just joke about or talk about like from time to time, but it's not really something that like we're like we really big on. It's just something we have in common. When you look at the the growth that you've had, and I imagine again, given your trajectory, you're probably still growing a lot even at this point, continuing to build and build with such a late start. What do you think you've improved on the most in your time at Florida? How have you grown the most in the last few years? Well, for the first factor is my condition. My condition has definitely been better. I feel like just me being out there, being able to move up and down the floor, it's just progress. It's, it's, it helps the team and it helps myself. And the other aspect I've grown is being vocal. Like, cause I feel like I have great basketball IQ, like because of my love for the game and watching the game over and over and learning about the game. So just being able to help other people be where they're supposed to be or uh, being a defense, like, the back anchor of the defense because I could see the whole floor. What areas do you feel like you're most focused on improving? 
However, I'm really um improving every anywhere I can. Like my my ball screen defense, uh, my finishing around the rim, my my shooting, my touch, just just every little thing. I feel like I'm good at a lot of stuff, but just getting better at, at everything. You mentioned the uh, the amount of basketball you've watched throughout your life, and really just soaking all that in. Um, what players have you most looked up to during your life, and even now? Whether it's guys today, guys that played when you were growing up, which players have you looked to and, and taken something from? When I first started watching basketball, LeBron was a player that made me fall in love with it. Like just the way he knew about the game, knew every aspect, knew every position. I fell in love with that. That, but the players I watch, like for my game, I watch a lot of DeMarcus Cousins, a lot of Al Jefferson, a lot of Zach Randolph, and now a lot of Joel Embiid. The players I look up to. I was looking at your your Twitter feed. A lot of a lot of LeBron stuff there. Lots of LeBron. Uh, let's say if you got to spend an hour with LeBron and just do whatever you wanted for that hour, what would you do if you had a chance to to hang with him for an afternoon? Nah, man, I'll talk his head off. I have a lot of questions <laughs> for LeBron, man. What what kind of questions? What 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 do you need from him? I ask questions like like his mindset being down three one and coming back. I ask questions like, what did he think was going to happen? Like, his decision. Did he know the scrutiny he was going to get? Mm-hmm. Um, and just about, like, how he knows about, like, I have a lot of questions. I don't even know like, <laughs> where to start. I have a lot of questions. I feel like I would have one question, which is, who told you it was a good idea to make Space Jam 2? Um, <laughs> that would be my, at least that's where I would start. And then from there, who knows where it would go. Did you see Space Jam 2? Yeah, I definitely saw Space Jam 2. Okay. So I don't think LeBron listens to this podcast. So you can be honest. What did you think of Space Jam 2? I mean, I thought it was okay. I just, I felt <laughs> like you just got to watch it. Like it is a new Space Jam. Not watch it like it's a new movie. Not like it's trying to be like Space Jam 1. Cause I feel right. like it's two different. It's two different generations, so they gotta they gotta cater to two different like people. I feel like I like that your loyalty, LeBron. You refuse to throw <laughs> that movie under the bus when it really deserves to be thrown under the bus. But I I respect uh-huh. it. I respect it. Um, off the court, what else do you like to do when you're when you're not thinking of questions to ask LeBron? What are some, or, or watching <laughs> Space Jam too? Uh, what are some of the things you enjoy doing with your time? Uh, watching basketball, really. Or playing basketball video games. That's basically what I do. Just play video games or watch basketball. There's got to be some stuff outside basketball. They're right. It can't be all basketball all the time. Nah, that's pretty much it. I play video <laughs> games. That's about it. <laughs> that's about it. I started, uh, I got into, I'm getting into like watching movies and I'm watching like old movies that I, I never watched because I was back home in Nigeria. So like yeah. watching, watching earlier movies. That's what I'm, that's what I'm doing now. I'm scared to ask this question, but what qualifies as older movies for for your purposes here? Like '90s, like like '90s movies. Okay, give give me give me some titles here. Let me let me know what's what's popping up on the screen. I recently watched this movie with Mar Lawrence and Eddie Murphy. It's called Life. Life, yeah, really, yeah. That's a movie I, I recently watched. So movies like that, just older black movies. So have you done have you done the Eddie Murphy movies of the '80s yet? I feel like that's an important stretch. Uh, like what? Like what movie? Trading Places, Beverly Hills Cop, Coming to America. Uh, I mean, I watched Coming hours. to America. Nah, but I'm gonna get around to those. I'm gonna get around to those. You got Yeah, you got to take it all the way. That's where that's where it starts. Is the Eddie Murphy of the '80s? Um, 
So yes, yeah, so is there not is that not really part of Nigerian pop culture? Like, there are parts of American pop culture in Nigerian culture, or is was all this new when you came here? I won't say it's in Nigerian culture, but we knew about it. Like, but it's American culture, but it's not in Nigerian culture. It's just something like we were fascinated by. So yeah, I watched like some American movies from time to time. But when I moved over here, that's when I mostly started catching up with those. What about music down there? Is the music the same or is like, were you exposed to, you know, like American hip hop or was that all new when you got here as well? I was definitely exposed to American hip hop, but we got the music later. So like we get a a new uh, music like three months after it came out when you already are tired of the music. That's when we get it. Yeah. So you're you're like just now they're getting blinding lights like three years later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, like that. They just um, now getting uh, Harlem Shake or something. Yeah, something yeah, crazy. yeah. That would be a really slow pie. I think Harlem Shake's like oh man, that's like ten years old at this point. That makes me feel. <laughs> yeah, old. Yeah. I don't even want to think about it. it makes me feel old. Um, final couple things for you. What do you miss most about home outside of family and friends? What are what are things you can get in Nigeria that you just can't get here? I would definitely say the culture. It's just some you can like re- like reproduce. Like it's it's just there. You have to be there to get it. So it's like you can't you um, Nigerians over um, Africans over here try to like make it, but it's not it's not the same. You have to be in the culture like to feel it. That's that's what I miss the most. What what is I've I've been on a kick recently where I'm trying new food. I just had Ethiopian food a few weeks ago for the first time. What is Nigerian food? What is that quintessential Nigerian food? We have a we have a whole bunch of we have a whole bunch of African Nigerian food. But what I like the most is the rice. The rice is, is the best rice ever. That's what I like the most. What makes it the because I love rice, so now I'm I'm very I'm intrigued by this. What what makes the rice so good? Like what makes it good is just because I feel like African countries we all battle with to see who have the the best rice, and I feel like like <laughs> tasting all of them, I feel like Nigeria has the better rice for sure. What are what are the the African rice power rankings here? What do they taste like? Are they like what is it? What makes them what makes them good? So they're called jollof rice. It's like I'm not I'm not a chef, so I can't really explain it. So, <laughs> but if, I'm I'm a know when I see it. Right. With the rankings, I'm gonna go. I'm going to go top two. I'm going to go Nigeria and then Ghanaian rice. Wow. Okay. No one, there's no, no one else even gets a spot. That's it. No, not at all. Final question for you. What are things that that you've enjoyed taking back home? What are, what are aspects of American culture or American life uh, that you've wanted to bring to the people in Nigeria when you go back there? Um, I'll say the clothes because my my family they're 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 bigger sizes like we all big people so like bringing back the clothes to them because they don't really have good clothes and my size or their size back so like buying clothes for me and taking it back there that's that's what I enjoy bringing back the most. And I bet they got a lot of gator clothes now, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got my my brother a lot of gator, <laughs> gator stuff. Lots of gator stuff. And that's gonna do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at floridagators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators.